Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Book Network. I am Stephen Pimper, a host of the Public Policy Channel, and today I am very pleased indeed to welcome Mark Robert Rank, who is the co-author with Lawrence Eppard and Heather Bullock of Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty, which is uh, new from Oxford University Press. Mark, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks a lot, Stephen. Great to be on. Uh, so before we dive in and talk about this book, I wonder if you might tell our listeners a little bit just about who you are and how you all came to this particular project. Yeah, so I'm a professor here at Washington University in the School of Social Work, and uh, my research for a long time has focused on issues of poverty and inequality. So I've done work in the past that has looked at uh, folks on um, welfare assistance and I had a book a number of years ago that focused on poverty and why that's really an issue we need to focus on. And then uh, my last book was uh, looking at the American dream. And uh, what do we know about that? Is that getting harder to achieve? Um, And so, you know, my long term interests have always been kind of focusing on this issue of of inequality broadly defined, and uh, in particular, the the issues of poverty and uh, economic insecurity. So why don't we turn our attention and and try to give listeners uh, a, a sense of what is in the book. Um, and I thought we might do this in in sort of three chunks. the The book is is organized in large measure around uh, myths that I think are are widely held about poverty in the U.S. So I thought we might talk about those myths themselves, then try to think a little bit about maybe where they come from and why it is that they they continue, why they per- Persist, and then maybe conclude with your thoughts about what we might be able to do about that. Uh, so why don't we start out with uh, what I, I think is probably a fairly widespread idea that whatever we feel about poverty, perhaps we don't need to worry too urgently about it, because when all is said and done, it doesn't really affect too many people. It's fairly uncommon. Uh, what's wrong with that? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, a, a lot of folks um, have the impression that, well, you know, poverty is going to happen to somebody else, but really not to me. And I've done a lot of work in the last few years on looking at the overall life course risk of poverty. And uh, what we find is that actually um, a majority of Americans will experience a year below the official poverty line. And actually three quarters of Americans will experience either poverty or uh, near poverty. And the reason for that is that if we look, instead of thinking about poverty on a sort of a snapshot basis or on a yearly basis, if we think over a longer period of time, during that period of time, things happen to people that they didn't anticipate. So things like losing a job, um, a family splitting up, getting sick, 
all of those things are related to the risk of poverty. And as you look over longer periods of time, it's much more likely to happen. So, um, so I think that that's, uh, that's one way of getting at this question of, you know, uh, it, how, how does poverty personally affect me? The other way, which I think is really interesting, is to think about what are the economic effects of poverty. And so I did an analysis a few years ago with a graduate student here, and we looked at um, what the overall economic cost of childhood poverty in the United States was. And, and we know that childhood poverty is related to higher health care costs. It's related to less economic productivity. It's also related to higher criminal justice costs. And so what we did is we tried to factor all that in to estimate how much on an annual basis poverty costs the United States. And we came up with a figure of slightly over $1 trillion uh, in 2015. To put that in perspective, that's about, that was about 28% of the entire federal budget. So the, the point being that we certainly pay a lot for the high poverty that we have in the United States. We, but what we do is we wind up paying for it on the back end of the problem rather than the front end of the problem. And when you pay for something on the back end of the problem, it's always a lot more expensive. So it costs a lot to put people, to incarcerate people. And these healthcare costs are really expensive. So, uh, so that's another way to think about this question. And I guess the other, um, the other sort of interesting thing about that analysis was um, we showed that for every dollar we spend reducing childhood poverty, we would save between seven and twelve dollars in preventing those future costs. So not only is reducing poverty the right thing to do, but from an economic point point of view, it's also the smart thing to do. So re- related to that, I think is 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 there there are a couple of ideas that maybe I can get you to take them together. Is that one again, sort of with 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 people sort of convincing themselves that this is something that is not likely to affect me, and maybe that's part of the reason I don't need to care about it. And besides, it's mostly an urban problem, and right, I live in a suburb or a rural area, so it's not something that's likely to affect me. And 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 in those urban places, this poverty is entrenched. It's long term. It's this sort of permanent geographic condition that is affecting a group of other people, and I don't need to care so much because that's not me. What do, what do we make of, of, of folks who might be thinking about the problem in that way? Yeah, so, you know, the, again, a lot of myths are there. The reality is, actually, there are more people in poverty in suburban areas than there are in central cities. Some of the most extreme poverty in the United States is in rural America. So if you look at areas like Appalachia or the Deep South and the Mississippi Delta, um, the um, uh, American Indian Reservations, the Central Corridor of California, all those areas have really, really high poverty. So, um, you know, often I think you're exactly right. We often think, oh, the image of poverty is that of the inner city, somebody who's uh, there for long periods of time, people of color. It turns out that the way to think about this is that the reach of poverty is really wide, um, but its grip is not that strong. So it turns out that most people who do experience poverty do so for one or two or three years. 
they get above the poverty line, and then at some point down the road, something else may happen to them, and they experience another year of poverty. But poverty dynamics are actually quite fluid, which again is sort of counter to the myth that we have of everybody in poverty is there for you know year in and year out. It turns out that that is not the case, that most people experiencing poverty do so for a fairly short period of time. But then again, as I said, down the road, they may experience another um, period where they, where they have some economic tough times. Do you, I mean, given all of that in your work and other people's work and the Census Bureau, right, through its dynamics of, of American poverty reports is also demonstrating this as well. Uh, we've got reports from the Federal Reserve looking at thin margins across large numbers of American households and limited savings reserves. I mean, given all of that, do you think that it is ultimately unproductive for us to be talking about poverty and that perhaps we should reorient our framing of this to talk about insecurity? Um, yeah, I do think so. I, I think, um, and, and in fact, I have in, in, in much of my work, I talk about sort of economic insecurity because it turns out that, um, again, a wide percentage of the population is vulnerable. Um, I would say that you know, the bottom 80% of the population at some point will experience some significant economic insecurity. In fact, um, in the uh, American Dream book that I mentioned at the beginning, um, we looked at folks between the ages of 25 and 60, and whether one of four events happened to them. Uh, they were in poverty, they had to use a social safety net program, um, they experienced a period of unemployment, uh, and we and we combined those those things together and found that again about eighty percent of the population at some point would experience economic insecurity. So I think that that's that's very much the case. Um, we can certainly talk about why that has occurred. I mean, one of the things that that's clear that that's put so many people at risk is that we've been creating more and more um, jobs that don't pay a livable wage, that it's hard to support a family on, uh, that don't have benefits. And all of these things have really increased overall economic insecurity. So so let's pick up there and return to, to another, I mean, arguably maybe even foundational myth of, of the United States. And that, that is that, that, uh, you you are ultimately the master or mistress of your own fate, and if you work hard and play by the rules, you can grow up to be anything that you want to be. We've got higher rates of mobility, and the means to escaping poverty is working hard, getting an education, and making good decisions. Is it worth maybe taking each of those in terms a little bit and and unpacking a little bit about why that may not be quite so uh, 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 evidently true as we might like to think? Yeah, let's. Uh, why don't we Why don't we take those on individually? Um, why don't you give me one and, and I'll respond. Uh, start with hard work, right? So, Just work your way out of poverty. What's the problem with that? All sorts of people do it. Yeah. So um, the way that I like to think about this is that hard work, when we think about getting ahead in life and we think about, um, you know, how do we do that? Um, I think we, we would agree that no matter where you are, um, hard work is important in terms of trying to achieve um, goals in life. However, what I found is that hard work is um, 
is a, a necessary condition, but not a sufficient condition for getting ahead. And, and the reason I say that is that I've talked to, and I'm sure you've talked to many people who are working extremely hard, but are still in poverty or near poverty. Um, and so just working hard, doesn't ne- that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get ahead. There are lots of people that you know, are working one job, two jobs. They're working extremely hard. But because of the nature of the labor market and because of structural problems, they're not able to get ahead. So I think that that's, um, that's one way of, of thinking about this that I think is helpful. That is, yes, hard work is important. But we need to, to put it into context and to see it as a necessary but not a sufficient condition for getting ahead. Um, you mentioned about mobility, and that's that's an interesting question because um, you know we know that in the United States we have uh, we have we're at the very high end in terms of income and wealth inequality. But sometimes what conservatives will say is, well, you know that that's not such a bad thing as long as people can move up and down the the income distribution, can go up the the ladder of opportunity. It turns out that actually we have less mobility in the United States than in a number of other kind of high economy OECD countries. Um, and so the idea of going from rags to riches is actually less common in the United States than it is in other countries. About of folks that are raised in the bottom 20% of the income distribution, only about six, seven, eight percent of them will actually be able to go to the top 20% of the income distribution. That's much smaller than a number of other countries. So that's another one of those myths, the rags to riches, which, yeah, it is true that occasionally people do do that, and that's great, but that's by far um, the exception and not the rule. Uh, so what about education? Well, shouldn't people then just, just if they can't do it through the labor market, well, go to school and work hard in school, and that will generate advancement for, for poor people? Yeah. So here's here's another way to think about this. Um, you know, I'm in higher education, and I'm, I'm the last person to say that education isn't important. Of course, it's important. But here's, here's a way to think about um, these sort of characteristics and put it into a different framework. What I like to, to use is the example of musical chairs. And the idea is, let's picture a game here where we have uh, 10 players and eight chairs. And uh, they're circling around, music stops, two people lose out. Okay, so we can say, why did those two people lose out? Well, they didn't have as much agility. They were in a bad position when the music stopped. And these are all reasons for why those two individuals lost out. But if we step back and we say, uh, let's look at the structure of the game. If we do that, then it really doesn't matter what those individual characteristics are because two people are going to lose out no matter how fast you are. And that's what I would say with education and skills that education and skills and family structure all help to predict who loses out at the game, but they can't explain why the game produces losers in the first place. And the reason why the game produces losers in the first place largely has to do with structural failings, such as we don't produce enough jobs that pay a living wage. We don't have social policies that protect individuals that other countries have. And so we're going to have some people lose out. And and I think this is a really interesting way to sort of combine these two things, because, yes, certain characteristics will predict who's more likely to experience poverty. 
But ultimately, the reason they're experiencing poverty is because of structural failings. It's because of the structure of the game. And altering individual behavior can't alter those fundamental structures. Absolutely. Um, And so, you know, if we think about um, if we think about these, you know, our policies in the past have largely been the policies that we've had, which have been, you know, pretty, pretty um, scarce. But those that we've had have focused on things like job training and education. And that's a perfectly good strategy on an individual basis. So for that individual, if somebody were to say to me, you know, how can I avoid poverty? On an individual basis, I'd say, yeah, you know, more education, more skills. You're going to be more competitive in the labor market. You're going to be able to get a better job. But it's really at the expense of somebody else. So here's another way to picture this. Picture a queue in line. And uh, at the end of the line or at the beginning of the line are the good jobs. There's only so many of those. So we can change people's position in the queue. We can move them up or move them down by increasing their education and their skills. But again, at the end of the day, there's only going to be so many people that are going to get those jobs. And so this is this is a fundamentally different way of thinking about this that I think is really, really critical and that um, you know that hopefully you know in the book we kind of try to bring bring this out. So you made reference to family structure. So why don't we talk a little bit about that? This was, of course, sort of of, of particularly central to welfare reform debates of the 1990s. Um, if, if people are familiar with the Welfare Reform Bill of 96, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunities Reconciliation Act, always a mouthful, the very first words of that act, right, where marriage is the foundation of a successful society. And we have for decades prioritized that kind of personal uh, uh, family structure decision making, right? Get married, uh, make responsible decisions about your reproductive behavior, don't smoke, don't drink, right? Sort of all that panoply of, of individual choice making that ultimately that's at the heart of so much American poverty. And if people would alter those decisions and make better ones, even in the face of constrained opportunities in labor markets and education, maybe they would be better off. So how do we deal with those kinds of arguments? Well, let's take the uh, let's take the argument about single parent families um, uh, being at a higher risk of poverty. And certainly that's the case in the United States. However, it doesn't have to be the case. So if we compare the United States with other countries, we find, for example, single parent families have uh, no, no higher poverty rate than married couples. So, for example, if you look at Denmark, you see that this is the, the, the case. Well, why is that? It's because they have policies that protect children uh, from falling into poverty. And again, that's a structural kind of um, kind of uh, uh, factor operating. Um, another thing, you know, you, you mentioned, and I think that's that you're exactly right, that, you know, welfare reform has really been driven by, you know, the issues of responsibility and behavior and things like that. Um, one of the myths out there is that women on welfare, um, you know, have more kids to get um, a higher welfare payment. Well, I've looked at one of my earlier analysis, looked at this question of birth rates for women on welfare. Number one, they actually have a slightly lower birth rate than women in the general population. But number two, I asked women and I said, you know, is this a, a factor at all of, of having a, 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 a another kid for, for uh, extra welfare payments? And what 
almost every woman told me was they said, you have to be crazy to have another kid for an extra $50 a month. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any economic sense. And yet that myth has been around and continues to be around, um, you know, in the United States uh, and, and amongst politicians, particularly conservative politicians, even though the research evidence is flatly refutes that particular myth. And it's also, you know, it's, it's, I think, worth pointing out, right? This is, you know, two uh, middle-aged white men talking uh, about policies that in the 90s were created by upper-income white men that governed the behavior of a population that they at least thought was, was predominantly black women living in cities. Any historical instance in which that group of people is trying to regulate the reproductive behavior of other populations has tended not to end particularly well. No, no, I would say, I would, I would say not. No, you're right. Um, but but you know you, you raise another um, you raise another really interesting issue here that we could talk about, and that is. Um, the issue of race and the issue of poverty and how the, these co- kind of intertwine in the United States. Uh, and, and what I would say is that in the U.S., we often look at poverty through a racial lens. Um, we often think about poverty as uh, folks that are non-white. And one of the really interesting things that research shows is that the more racially heterogeneous a society is, like the United States, the less generous its social welfare state is. And one of the reasons that people propose that that's the case is because when people look different than us, we're less likely to be generous in terms of social policy. So when you have countries like the Nordic countries where you know everybody is pretty much kind of coming from the same spot, there's much more of a feeling, oh, I can relate to this person. I can relate to their circumstances. In the United States, race is used as this sort of lens in which to view poverty. And one of the things that people talk about is the result of that is that we're much less generous in terms of our social policies. And if you look across states, you'll see that this holds up. So the states that tend to be the least generous are the southern states. States that are most generous would be States like Vermont, um, you know, where there's a, a, a much less um, racial heterogeneity. So I think it's a really interesting, uh, it's an interesting way to think about um, poverty and sort of our responses to poverty in the United States and why we are so, um, so meager in terms of the types of social policies that we have to address poverty. So you've, you've talked a number of times about the the the, the stinginess of, of the American welfare state in so many ways. And yet uh, one of the the arguably persistent myths about the United States is that we spend far too much money on welfare to begin with, right? So we spend too much money. Uh, it's riddled with fraud and abuse, and it's ineffective anyway, and it doesn't work. Right. So start with with the spending too much money. Do we spend too much money on assistance programs to poor and low income people? No. I mean, compared to other countries, we spend uh, much, much less in terms of sort of um, direct assistance to folks in poverty. So, you know, if you look at um, the program that a lot of times people call welfare, which is the TANF program, Temporary Assistance to Needy Families. 
Um, in terms of our overall budget, it's less than 1% that we spend on that program. Now, if you include things like, for example, Medicaid, um, or, or if we want to throw in Social Security, then, yeah, we do spend a lot on those programs. But for a program specifically targeted towards the poor, um, we, spend, uh, we spend much less than, than, than most other countries. And it's it's worth pointing out just as a footnote there that that in in Medicaid, which you mentioned, um, while most of the recipients are poor and low income, most of the money is actually going to older people who are in nursing homes. Yeah, that's right. That's a really good point. Um, yeah, that's right. That that uh, most of the Medicaid dollars go to folks that are in nursing homes. Um, you know, the other the other big ticket program there would be the Medicare program. Um, but again, you know, that's not a program. It certainly helps um, elderly, the elderly that are in poverty, but it's not directed towards those in poverty. It's for those who are over 65 or older. So what are the, the I mean, you will, you will hear people argue and, and um, you know, this is sort of a consistent pattern. They will indiscriminately lump a, lump a whole bunch of those programs together and say, we spend whatever it is, X trillion dollars a year on all of these programs, and we still have all of this poverty and insecurity, as Professor Rank has just admitted. It's all ineffective, and government shouldn't be doing this anyway, because it clearly can't do it. Yeah. So, so, um, so I w- let's let's point to two things to show that 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 argument doesn't hold up. That that in other words, if government spending is just a waste, um, the first the first example would be what happened in the 1960s in terms of poverty. So in 1964, President Johnson declared uh, war on poverty. We created a lot of programs directed towards those in poverty. We also at that time had a very strong economy. Well, what happened with poverty? Poverty went from 22% of the population in 1959 to 11% in 1973. In other words, the rate of poverty was cut in half in a little over 10 years. That's a huge reduction in terms of poverty. So there we see an example where poverty can be reduced, both through social policy and through uh, a strong economy. The other example that I would give is, is just the one we were talking about earlier, which is the elderly. So in, 19, um, in 1959, the poverty rate for the elderly uh, was around 35%. So about 35% of folks who were 65 and older in the United States were in poverty. Today, that figure is about 10%. And there's only one reason for that, and that has to do with government programs such as Social Security and Medicare, which have had a huge effect on reducing poverty for the elderly. So the, this, these are two examples in the United States that show that if we want to do something about it, actually government programs can be quite effective. The other example I would give is with other countries that have a much lower rate of poverty. And the primary reason is because they're much more um, socially, uh, they, they're, they're much more proactive in terms of fighting poverty and preventing people and families from falling into poverty. So I think there's lots of um, examples out there. I mean, Ronald Reagan was famous for saying, you know, we fought a war on poverty and poverty won. That's not right. Uh, yeah, we didn't completely reduce poverty, but the war on poverty actually had a pretty strong effect on cutting the overall poverty rate in half. 
So given all of that, right, given what you have just laid out for us, um, and, you know, I mean, you and I can can both attest that 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 you are not articulating uh, radical fringe positions that you are you are in fact art, uh, uh, articulating a reading of of the research that I think most people who studied this would agree with. Uh, why do these myths nonetheless continue to to persist in the face of all of this evidence that is accumulated against them? Yeah, so that's a that's a really good question, and that's sort of. At the um, at the back section of the book, um, we take up this question. It's a really interesting one, and one of one of uh, my co-authors, Heather, um, kind of talks about this from a psychological point of view. The the idea of stereotyping and things like that. But my background is in sociology, so let me throw out a, a, a few, a couple of kind of sociological explanations for why those myths continue. Because you're right. It's like the you know the the evidence is pretty overwhelming that these myths are wrong. So why do they continue? So I think we can ask. We look at that a couple of ways. We can ask the question uh, that uh, folks in sociology sometimes ask, which is, who benefits from these myths? Who's benefiting from perpetuating these myths? And it's perfectly clear that some politicians have benefited. I mentioned Ronald Reagan. He was notorious for using these welfare myths to rail against uh, welfare and poverty and to gain support in sort of the, the blue collar Democrats that, that moved over um, to support him. Uh, Bill Clinton uh, was famous in 1992. He was behind in, in the, in the uh, primaries. But he started talking about we need to end welfare as we know it. And that garnered a lot of support. Um, and there's many, many examples of politicians who have used um, these myths to benefit their, their, their own. Um, I think another way to think about that is, you know, if we believe in these, if, if we say, oh, yeah, these, these are, this is what's going on, um, then the, the result of that is, well, I don't really have much responsibility towards that. I mean, what what's my if if you're at fault, I I don't have any responsibility. On the other hand, if we say, look, this is a structural failing, we all have a responsibility. Um, that implies that we actually actually do need to do something. But it's much easier to say, oh, it's your fault. I'm sorry, but I don't have anything to do with that. Um, so, you know, I think there are several different ways we can kind of take that question on. But um, but it is a really important one to think about why those myths continue. And, and as I mentioned, um, my co-author Heather talks about the ideas of stereotyping and how that works and um, so more of a psychological perspective. So we kind of blend the psychological explanations uh, along with the sociological explanations. And, um, and I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a really important, and it's also a really interesting, um, interesting chapter that we have. And it's, it's, and I, you know, I wonder if, if also, you know, particularly thinking of the work that that you have done over your career on 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 experience of poverty over the life course, and just how enormously large a share of the population is likely to experience. I I, I periodically wonder if there is there is some sort of psychological defense mechanism that keeps in right because if we recognize that as reality, well, that's terrifying. 
right? That that's not a thing that that I don't have to worry about because that's going to happen to somebody else. Yeah. That could be me. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. And it's sort of like, um, you know, as I mentioned, I, I did a book a few years ago on the American dream. Um, this is like the American nightmare. Uh, you know, this is this is sort of the opposite. And um, and we, you know, we want to believe in the American dream. We want to believe that, you know, it, it, that that you can get ahead on your own and you can you can do well and all that kind of stuff. Um, and what that does is it um, it relieves the um, the urgency to really do something about these conditions, because if you if we continue to believe, oh, if I only work hard enough, I'll get ahead. Um, you know, then there's no need to do anything in terms of, of structural um, policies. Uh, but, but, you know, again, what, what this book is really trying to do, and it's, I think, the first book that, that has really done this, is to take on all of these different myths and to really present the research evidence. So this is not, you know, this isn't a, a, a red issue or a blue issue or a left or right. This is like looking empirically um, with the research and saying this is really the way we've looked at poverty is really wrong. And uh, and we're going to lay this out. And then, as we can talk about now, um, where do we go from here? OK, if, if that's the case, then, then then what do you propose doing? So what do you propose doing? Where do we go? <laughs> okay, so so to go back to my um, musical chairs analogy, uh, what we need to do is have policies that provide more chairs for players in the game. So what does that mean? I think number one is um, creating uh, jobs that will pay a livable wage that families can can live on. Um, Okay, so what what do we do? Uh, There's certain things that are being talked about right now. The idea of raising the um, minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour. Um, I think that that's that's very positive. Um, we can think about the earned income tax credit. There's also the idea of child allowances, which uh, the Biden administration has proposed in their um, stimulus package, and the uh, and uh, Mitt Romney has also proposed a very uh, interesting proposal for that. that That's kind of a riff on the uh, universal basic income idea. So what this that would do would, for every um, family below a certain um, level of, say, 400000 they would be able to get a monthly payment um, uh, that, that would be directly deposited um, into their bank. And, uh, and that's an idea that, that goes back decades for European countries. They've routinely had children's allowances. But um, the fact that it's being talked about right now is actually, I think, quite, quite hopeful. And I, I'm actually quite optimistic that, you know, with the new administration, um, we may see some movement on some of these ideas. So that would, be, that would be one thing in terms of, again, thinking about changing the structure of the game, creating jobs, getting wages up to a livable wage. Um, providing some kind of um, assistance for children. There are other things that we can think about. You know, I think that the sort of the resources that people have available that, that, that we really need to, to make universally available. So clearly healthcare, um, affordable and accessible childcare, affordable housing. Those are all um, good education for all children, not just some children. Those are all, I think, really important things that really improve the quality of life and, again, get at the structure of the game. 
Um, so those are some ideas. There, there, we have a, a few other ideas as well, but um, but I think that's the key point: is let's have policies that don't focus on who loses out at the game. Let's focus on policies that change the game itself and reduce the number of losers in the game. And as you pointed out earlier, making those kinds of strategic investments in individual and group well-being can, in fact, have large-scale economic benefits to the country as the whole, correct? Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, I've got a, a, a friend here and we're working on actually on a book on um, economic inequality. But what he has shown is that when you have wide inequality and wide, uh, wide scale poverty, um, that actually reduces our economic productivity. That makes us less productive as a society. And one of the best things that we can do to create more opportunities is to invest in our people, to invest in our children. That's some of the the best dollars spent would would allow us to to do that. And so again, as I said before in that study that I did, for every dollar we spend reducing childhood poverty, we save between seven and twelve dollars down the road. So um, it, it's it's really a critical. And it, it, again, it's this isn't the left or right issue. This is just a smart issue. It's just smart to invest in our children. It's it's really not smart to um, to disinvest in them, to have children that go hungry. That that just is not good economic policy. You are listening to the New Books Network. We have been speaking with Mark Robert Rank, who is a co-author with Lawrence Eppert and Heather Bullock of Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Stephen, it was a pleasure. Thanks a lot.